Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess that your word alone is truth. Your word is the truth. It's the only truth because it comes from you, the only true God. And your word is perfect in every way. It is sharp and powerful like a two-edged sword. Lord, it cuts to heal. It speaks life, and if it's rejected, it grants death. Lord, your word, two things you have exalted, your word and your name, above all others. And I pray that that would be so in our hearts. Lord, we need, our hearts need to be moved by a new and a fresh view of your majesty and your glory, of your holiness. Our hearts need to be moved to reverent fear before you and not some kind of buddy-buddy complacency. Our hearts need to be gripped yet again with the glory and the beauty of Christ. That, that confession, give me Christ or else I die, needs to be more than just a song we sing. It needs to be reality in each of our lives. Father, you know what we need. You know what our hearts desperately must have, what our souls require. And so I pray that you will meet with us this morning in your word and grant us what we need. I pray that you would move through me, Lord God, to speak. I would speak with your voice. I would speak your words faithfully, that I would be an instrument, Lord God, in your hands for your glory. And I pray, Father, for this congregation that they will have hearts truly to receive this word, that they won't be distracted, that they won't tune out, that they won't, Father God, assume anything or presume anything, but that their hearts would hang upon your truth, every word faithfully spoken. Lord, we need you. We need you. We need you to come and do in us what what we can't do for ourselves, to inflame our hearts, to stoke the affections of our heart and our soul toward you to create in us a faithfulness and an earnestness to honor you in all things. We're drawing near to you, Lord God, to hear you speak to us, to speak words with power, to transform even the most stony of hearts. So be glorified, I pray, this day in the preaching of your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love, I'm going to risk... I'm going to risk offending some of you this morning, but not all, I'm certain, by making a simple but very earnest statement. I believe that we need revival. And I'm not talking about the church down the road, or the church in America, or the church around the world. I'm talking about this church right here. I'm not talking about everybody but you. I'm talking about you and me. I've been praying about this, and I've been thinking about this, honestly, for the last several months. It has been heavy on my heart and on my mind. I see us growing complacent. I see us treating God with contempt. I see us not reverencing the holiness of God like we should. I see us taking for granted the good gifts of God. I see us treating God's commandments as if they're suggestions. I see the sporadic nature of our spiritual lives. You see it too, if you're honest. Don't you? Well, nobody wants to say it. All right, I'll say it. It's evident. And if you're not seeing it, you're blind. I don't want you to perceive this incorrectly. Because I know people are going to have a tendency to do this. I remember the last time I said something similar to this. There were people that got really offended. How dare you say, I need revival? By your very response. I'm not saying this to slam us. I'm not saying this to, you know, as an insult. That's the last thing I want to do is insult you. Right? I'm not saying this as a motivational ploy to, you know, induce in you some low-level guilt so that you'll do better and, and try harder. It is none of those things. I see it plainly with my eyes, and I think you do too. Someone asked me when I told them I was going to preach on this very subject today. They were like, well, you sure you ought to do it on, on New Year's Eve? I mean, probably most people won't be there. Shouldn't you wait? I was like, here's the truth. 
If I were going to preach this sermon to everybody live, I'd have to do it four weeks in a row to catch everybody. And that not ought, me, ought not make you laugh. That ought to make you cry. It's not funny. It's my deep conviction we need revival. We need to be refreshed. We need renewed. We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon this church. We need a fresh vision of the glory and the majesty of God. We need a fresh vision of the glory and the beauty of Christ. A compelling vision that captures our souls, not just for a moment, that captures our hearts and our minds and our lives with significance, man. Every one of us, and me included, Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, you might know her name, you know, Nancy Lee DeMoss, she's the leader of a, of, a, of a women's ministry, Revive Our Hearts. She wrote an article that I read not long ago that described when it is that we need revival. And I, I just, she said in part, and I just want to read these things to you. She said in part, we need a revival when we do not love Christ as we once did. We need revival when earthly interests and occupations are more important to us than eternal ones, when our church dinners are better attended than our prayer meetings, when we have little or no desire for prayer, or when our prayer is rote and empty of heartfelt praise and plea. We need revival when we would rather make money than give money. We need revival when our Christianity is joyless and passionless. We need revival when we know truth in our heads that we are not practicing in our lives. When we do not tremble at the Word of God. When preaching and the hearing of it lacks conviction, confrontation, divine fire, and anointing. When we seldom think thoughts about eternity. We need revival when God's people are more concerned about their jobs and their careers than about the kingdom of Christ and the salvation of the lost. We need revival when our marriages are coexisting rather than full of the love of Christ. When our children are growing up to adopt worldly values, secular philosophies, and ungodly lifestyles. We need revival when we tolerate little sins or when we redefine horrible sins as not much. When we give ourselves allowances, when we give ourselves a pass. We need revival when our singing is half-hearted and our worship is lifeless. When we're bored and inconsistent in worship. When our hearts are cold and our eyes are dry. When we've ceased to weep and mourn and grieve over our sin and over the sin of others. When we don't long for the company and the fellowship of God's people. When we don't give or serve as we should. When we're more concerned about what others think about us, what others think about us, than what God thinks about us. When we are making little or no difference in the secular world around us. When the fire has gone out in our hearts, our marriages, and the church. And then she says, we need a revival when we are blind to the extent of our need. And we don't think we need a revival. Now you might hear that last statement and it might seem like a convenient catch-all, right? Oh, okay. The ones that need revival are the people that don't think they need revival. That gives evidence that they really need revival, right? And so you go, yeah, well, that might be true of some people, but let me just tell you something. That statement, in my experience, is absolutely right. Absolutely right. Again, I remember not long ago when I talked about this in a very pointed way in our gathering. There were people, the very people that said to me, that's wrong, that's over the top, that's harsh, you're misperceiving people, were the very ones that were gone within a year and who are now totally apostate. And I'm not talking about like one or two. I'm talking like 10 or 12, maybe more. I'll say three things about Nancy Wolgamuth's statement. The first thing I'll say is this. It takes some real spiritual guts to write that. 
doesn't it? You know why? Because immediately people will be offended, won't they? Won't they? It takes some guts to say that. It takes some guts to say, hey, you know what? It might be that the emperor has no clothes. The second thing I'll say about what she said is that she's right. She's absolutely right. Nothing that she said there is incorrect. And the third thing that I'll say, beloved, is this, is that if we're honest, we would have to say that we see some of those very things that she speaks of in our own church, in ourselves, don't we? Don't we? I do. Look, man, we need a revival for all the reasons that Nancy Wolgamuth describes But I would say, and especially because we live in a world and we live in a society and we live in a culture, even a church culture, that that conspires to promote and encourage spiritual lethargy and lifelessness and compromise and lukewarmness and indifferent spiritual complacency and dormancy and stagnation. We live in a perilous world. We need revival. And we need revival, too, because of the warnings in Scripture regarding falling away from the Lord. Those warnings that we read, and we want to think that they're about somebody else and they're addressed to somebody else off in the future, then it really doesn't apply to right now, oh, beloved. They do. They do. We read these warnings in Scripture regarding the falling away from the Lord The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about it. He spoke about the signs of the ends of the age when he said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 13, these words. He said, and then, speaking about the signs of the end of the age, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. He's not talking about people out there in the world. He's talking about professing Christians. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you remember his letters to the churches in Revelation? you remember the letters that, that Jesus dictates to the apostle John? I want you to think about this. These letters were letters that were written at most, at most, 60 years After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when these letters are written, these churches, some of them, are already showing signs of declension. You remember Ephesus about whom Jesus said in Revelation 2.4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. You remember the church in Pergamum that willingly allowed those who taught the the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to go into that right now, but let's just say not Christian doctrine. He chastened the church in Thyatira, who tolerated that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. To the church in Sardis, Jesus said, I know your works. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Then to Laodicea, maybe the most scathing denunciation of them all, and I would say probably the most accurate reflection of the American church. I know your works. That ought to make us tremble, shouldn't it? That ought to make us sober-minded. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
Those are churches within a lifetime after Christ's resurrection, his crucifixion and resurrection, that are already declining. Paul addressed this same concern with Timothy. You remember what he said. He said, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. He's talking about the falling away of professing believers. He says, understand this, later on, 2 Timothy 3, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, and by the way, they will have the appearance of godliness. They have the appearance of godliness. Beloved, who's he talking about? But deny its power. The Apostle John, don't, do not love the things do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Again, he's not talking about the world. He's not talking about the world of unbelievers. He's talking about professing Christians. The writer of Hebrews cautions us. I could keep going all day long in this, in the word of God, these cautions against falling away, right? I'm not, I, 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 I confine them to a few. But the writer of Hebrews cautions us. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. And then he says, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, take care, brothers. Take care, brothers. Not people, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Take care. Watch your heart. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be fooled by sin, is what he's saying. Beloved, that's how sin works. And that's how by, that's how by small declension, by small declension, our hearts grow cold toward God. By the deceitfulness of sin. Do y'all know what skim ice is? Do y'all know what that is? You grew up in the South, so probably not. But up north, skim ice was the harbinger that you could soon play hockey on the pond. You'd get up in the morning, and there would be this little tiny skim of ice across the top of a stagnant body of water, right? But it was the promise that the freeze was coming. Can I tell you what? That's just how sin works. That's just how sin works. Sin in a Christian's life at first is like skim ice. Hearts that once seemed warm, ever so gradually cool. And I'm not talking about the big sins. Like It's not always the big ticket items. In fact, often it's not. It's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. And then the little foxes transmogrify into ravenous wolves hearts that once seemed vibrant ever so gradually cool the person that once demonstrated a warm and a vibrant faith in christ begins to cool the desire to read god's word lessens prayer becomes infrequent worship becomes tedious boring and all kinds of excuses are found not to be with christian friends and that skim ice thickens 
And the heart gets colder and colder. And the voice of Christ no longer has its former effect. And the beauty of Christ no longer attracts. And before you know it, the world becomes all appealing. And you may not openly give yourself to the same things as the world, but you do it privately. You see that your desires and your convictions and your love and your things you desire the most aren't the things they once were. Peter, Peter speaks plainly to us saying this. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and starting in verse 3, listen to these words closely. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that we need for spiritual life and for godliness, everything God's given to us. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through his promises, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's saying, you know what? Here's the truth about you. If you're in Christ, God has given to you everything that you need for a vibrant, satisfying, soul-delighting life in Him. He's given you everything that you need for the abundant life that Christ promises. Every single thing. He's granted it to you that you can partake of the, of the divine nature, the life of God in you. Right? Are you hearing me? And he says, so for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. You know what those are? That's the life of God in man. Isn't it? Isn't it? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you, listen now, from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Don't be presumptuous. Don't be presumptuous. Not long ago, I was talking with somebody, and what they were doing was sin, and they were encouraging somebody else in sin. And they actually said these words to me. If I'm wrong in what I'm doing, at least God's gracious, and I know I'm forgiven, that's not faith. That's presumption. Are you hearing me? That's presumption. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And that's what we're worried about, right? Falling away. That's what we're talking about. If you do this, you won't fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul, Peter's saying. He's saying, be diligent to partake of the divine nature. Be diligent to grow in grace. Be diligent to be fruitful and effective. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. And here is why, beloved. Because... The most important thing about us, the most important thing about the church, the most important thing, chief, number one, is our spiritual condition before God. Isn't that true? That's what matters above everything else. What is our true spiritual condition before the Lord? That's what matters, not what we think, what is. And that's why I'm saying to you, we need revival. What is that? All right, I hear you saying that, but what is revival? J.I. Packer describes revival saying this. He says, revival is the visitation of God, which brings life to Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Thence springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart in repentance and praise and love with an evangelistic outflow. Revival is nothing, nothing less than the visitation of God, beloved. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. He says, revival, above everything else, is a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's 
The restoration of him to the center of the life of the church. Amen. But you know what? I think the best description, the best description that I've read of revival comes from a guy you haven't even heard of. Some little known pastor named Lowell Yoder who said, in times of revival, God manifests his glorious presence in the midst of his people. The awesome sense of his holiness produces overwhelming conviction of sinfulness leading to deep repentance. The greater measure of the Spirit poured out rejuvenates an authentic church. Everywhere there is bountiful praise and worship, hunger for truth, and a wholehearted service to God overflowing into powerful evangelization of the world. Don't you want that? Isn't that what you'd rather have? I read that, and my heart is like, yes, God, amen. May it be so. Look, I don't know how many years I have left on this earth. I'm 55. I'm going to be 56 this year. I could be gone tomorrow, but I'll tell you this. I don't want to spend the rest of my life playing at worship and playing at devotion and playing at, 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 at being the people of God and looking through squinched eyes at other congregations and validating ourselves by saying, well, at least we met on Christmas Eve morning. They shut their doors. Who cares? I don't want, I don't want for us to reduce ourselves to such foolishness. Not when there is abundant life to be had beyond what we're experiencing. We need a revival. And so I, and my grandson agrees, we need a revival. And so I want to direct our attention this morning to Psalm 85. It's a hopeful psalm. It's an expectant psalm. It's an optimistic psalm. It's a psalm that describes the hope that God will give what we so desperately need. Look at it with me. Let's Stand together. Don't freak out. The introduction was half my sermon. Look at this with me. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O oh God. O oh God of our salvation, and put Away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, and glory, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him. And make his footsteps away. Amen. You got to be seated. Psalm 85 speaks to our need perfectly, doesn't it? Nobody's exactly sure when this psalm was written. I believe it was directly after the exile, after the Babylonian exile, after the return from the Babylonian exile. I say that because I've read Ezra and Nehemiah and it matches perfectly. But be that as it may, here's what we see in this text. We see this recognition by the psalmist of God's past mercy, which was no small thing. And we see this stark awareness that he has of those present need for revival in the people. And then we also see this hope of future blessing. It's a practical, encouraging psalm. And so I want us to just look at this, and I'm going to be brief, because I want us to have time to pray together this morning at the end of the sermon. Okay? Look at the way that he starts by remembering God's former mercy. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. He says, Lord, you were favorable to your land, to your people. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Here's what he's doing. 
The psalmist is looking back, right, to, to a time when God had been gracious and been merciful to Israel. I think it's, 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 it's during, again, the restoration from the exile in, in Babylonia and in, in Babylon. But, but here's the deal. He's looking back to a time when the people had experienced the Lord's favor. When he restored their fortunes, literally, that restored their fortunes literally means when they'd been rescued from captivity. They'd experienced the Lord's forgiveness of their iniquity, that deep-seated and deeply ingrained sin which had become in, to which they had become insensible and oblivious, this sin that was entrenched and habitual in their lives. God had covered it all. That is, he'd atoned for it. And he'd lifted it up and borne it away, their sins, turning away his wrath and his hot anger. And so the, the psalmist is looking back and he's remembered a time when God had restored Israel from their plight and, and from this situation that was brought on by Israel's failure to keep faith with God. And he remembers gratefully that mercifully the Lord did not allow his people to continue going on under divine displeasure. Instead he was merciful to them, right? He delivered them. He rescued them when there was no expectation that he would. And beloved, I want us to see that that, that description of the, of the rescue of the people of God here in these first three verses, it's an apt picture of our own rescue, isn't it? Of the salvation of our souls through the perfect life and atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The favor that God has shown us, the restoration that we've experienced, the forgiveness of our sins, our iniquity, you know, when the Holy Spirit applied Christ's redemption to our own souls. When he brought us out of captivity to sin and to Satan, he gave us new life through the faith that the Spirit created in our hearts, the way that he turned his anger away and extinguished his anger against us upon his own son, right? That's mercy. That's grace. Unexpected, glorious, and awesome. So the psalmist is looking back. He's looking back to the Lord's former work of salvation and not in some wistful way and not in some way to, to comfort his soul and say, well, God was good to us back then, so we don't need to worry about things now. That's not it. He looks back as fuel for his hope right now. Listen to what I'm going to say to you. I don't want you to hear me when I say this. Okay? It's very important. Looking exclusively backward in a spiritual sense is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to do. You get into the mindset of the good old days that can never be good again. You get into the mindset of, oh, back then God did these things, but now God doesn't do those things. Looking exclusively backward is a dangerous thing. I mean, think about it. In practical terms, when you drive your car, do you look backwards to see where you've been? Do you? You better look forward to see where you're going, right? That's what the psalmist does here. He glances back, but then he's right there in the present, right away. And look into the future. And he's completely honest. Can I tell you that? He's completely honest. We'll see it. Look what he says in verses 4 through 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that our, your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Notice what he does. He looks at the current condition of the people and of himself, and he sees a present need. Now let me just say something. If you read the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what you will find is there was a great deal of spiritual activity going on amongst the exiles that had returned. They were busy, man, rebuilding first the temple and then rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. They weren't lazy. They were active. They were working. They were, you know, working their fingers to the bone. They were, you know, trowel in one hand, sword in the other. Hallelujah. But when you read those books, I encourage you to read them. You find out that though there's much activity, there's a loss of spiritual vitality, a loss of joy, the presence of fear. A lack of peace. The psalmist looks on his people and what he sees is, is a need for renewal, a need for restoration and revival. There's been a loss. And interestingly enough, can I tell you what? 
He doesn't name a particular sin, does he? He doesn't name like a, a particular event or a situation that has caused this loss. In, instead, he describes really kind of almost a general malaise. Like this, this insensitivity to the Lord, this cloud that kind of just descended on the people. The sense of spiritual drift, right? And he's, he's honest to say God's not pleased. God is indignant. God is not happy with us in this condition that we're in. Notice that he doesn't make any attempts at self-justification, does he? You see that? He doesn't try to argue or plead with God that their situation isn't as bad as it seems. There's no arguing that we are, you know, we're the exception to the rule here. Instead, he just confesses that God isn't pleased with his people. He's indignant, he's grieved, and he's provoked. And again, he doesn't cite a specific sin. Instead, what he does is he uses an expansive term in verse 8 as a catch-all. Look at it. It's the word folly. It's a strong word. It's really a multi-purpose word. It's one of those words that you can use to describe a variety of things. And that's why the psalmist chooses it. If you look throughout the scripture, it's used in various places to describe such things as just spiritual thoughtlessness or apathy. The forsaking of God is the central reality of life. It speaks of error or modifying the character of God. It describes Trading God's wisdom and his righteous commands for worldly wisdom or just ignoring God's truth altogether. It speaks of, folly does, rejecting God's love. It speaks of the rejection of his lordship and the ownership of our lives. It speaks of a dull heart toward God, of actions that don't match professions. Folly is even used to speak of idolatry, which is just simply displacing God with anything else, whether it's, in, it's good or bad. Folly is this huge catch-all because it's not one specific sin. It's a host of them. And no one is guilty of all of them, but each are guilty of some of them. And it's because of this folly that they're in need of revival. They're in need of a fresh experience of God's presence, this newfound sense of God's steadfastness and unchanging love. They are in need of newfound joy in God's salvation and in His Word. A new sense of His sovereign Lordship. Yes, they are currently in malaise, and God is not happy, but the psalmist has hope in God's mercy. And when he says here, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? The way those questions are asked in the Hebrew indicates, no, no, of course not. No, that's not God's heart at all. And so he pleads with God. He prays to God. He lays hold of the Lord. He calls upon him in faith. He entreats him. He cries out to him in the imperative. He boldly says to the Lord on the basis of his former mercies, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. It's not pretty, please. He is bold in approaching the throne of grace, isn't he? Isn't he? He's not presumptuous. I don't want us to get that thought in our heads. That's not what it is. He's not presumptuous. He's making this request on the basis of God's character. Do you see that? His hope is not in the character of the people. His hope is not that somehow the people can turn themselves around. Because you know what? We can't. We can get ourselves turned around, but we can't turn ourselves around. His hope is in God. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Restore us. Make us alive to you again. He's not, he's not satisfied with their spiritual, current spiritual state. He knows we can't manufacture spiritual vitality on our own. God, we can't do it. And so he turns to the only place that he can. He turns to the Lord himself. Revive us. Restore us. I, I'm not even sure he knew what all he was asking. How God might do that. But he knows God's the only one that can restore my, my flagging faith. He's the only one that can renew my struggling soul. He's the only one that can revive the joy in the Lord and renew our devotion to him that's lacking. And so he takes it upon himself to pray. Only God can give him what he needs. That word restore is a word that means turn us. 
Turn us from our sins. Turn us to repentance. Put the bit in our mouth and make us go in the opposite direction. Make us willing to see every sin of which we're guilty. Let us see what we're really about. Take away the rose-colored glasses. Let us see the sins we've committed and let us turn us from them. Make us forsake every evil way. Enable us to do it. That's the idea. Revive us again. Make our souls alive again. Bring us back from the brink of death. That's what the word revive means. Bring us back from the brink of death. There's an urgency here. Bring us back from the brink of death so that we can rejoice in you again. Do you see what God is after here? Do you see what God desires for his people? That we would rejoice in him exceedingly and abundantly and above all. That that would be the fruit of the life of God in us. That we would rejoice in him. And that rejoicing in him would... Look, that's, that's the thing from which our obedience and our worship and our praise and our devotion and our giving and our evangelism would come. If I am filled with joy regarding someone or something, my life will tell the tale, won't it? Won't it? He prays. He prays because he trusts in the word of the Lord. It's like Isaiah recorded, right? God's got to come near and manifest his mercy, his power, and his grace. The psalmist convinced that he will. This, this is what he, you know, you know these words from Isaiah 57. We haven't gotten there yet. We'll be there in a few weeks. But thus says the Lord who is high and lifted up. Thus says the Lord who is <clears throat> high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Oh, we need to see that God. You with me? I dwell in the high and the holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. God doesn't draw near to the proud. He doesn't draw near to the self-sufficient and self-satisfied. He doesn't draw near to those who think they need no drawing near of God. He draws near to people who see themselves as they should, as lowly and contrite of heart. The psalmist sees that his only hope, the only hope for his people is God himself, the very one that they had marginalized. Do you see that? And we need to see something else. We need to see that when the psalmist recognized the spiritual condition of the people of God, he doesn't just sit idly by. He seeks the Lord in prayer. He, doesn't, he, he sees the need and he calls upon the Lord. He doesn't just ignore the situation. Why am I emphasizing that? I'll tell you why. The psalmist knows that the Lord is the sovereign king, right? Right? That... that, that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases, Psalm 115 in verse 3. Isn't that true? But that knowledge of God's sovereignty, that God does whatever God determines to do, that's not an excuse in him for inaction or indecision, is it? It's not an excuse in him to say, well, whatever will be, will be. The realization that God is sovereign is what drives him to pray, to approach him. And he prays earnestly. I want you to notice, too, that this psalmist includes himself in this prayer. We might think, well, does he really have the need to, to pray for revival? Does he really have the need to pray for restoration personally? I mean, at least he's got the eyes to see what's going on. And if there's nobody else, at least he's the guy that's praying. Right? Right? We have a look at him and say, well, this guy doesn't really need to pray for these things. I mean, look at him. He's already sensitive to the Lord. But that's not his heart at all. It's not revive them as if he has no need himself. It's not revive those people. It's revive us. Me included. It's not about everybody else and what they need. It's about what they all need. It's not they need revival. It's we need revival. And so he prays, Lord, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Lord, display your abiding, unchanging love for us by delivering us from this folly. That's the idea here of the word salvation. Not salvation in the eternal sense, the restricted sense of eternal salvation, but it's the idea of rescue us from this trouble that is ultimately leading to our calamity. Rescue us from our folly, Lord. And then we see, praise God, the psalmist's great expectancy, right? He's not pray. he doesn't pray all these things and then go, now, I don't know. I don't know if you heard me. I don't know if you really want to do this, but I hope you do. And now I'll just kind of go back and 
Hope you heard me. It's not that at all. This dude's got faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. He's, he's filled with expectancy. He expects this prayer for God to revive his people to be answered. He's praying in faith. Look what he says. He says, first of all, let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Do you see? He's pouring out his heart to God, right? And he's not expecting that God is going to hear it and remain silent. He's expecting God to talk. He's expecting God to speak. He says, let me have ears, right? He knows. See, here's the thing. The psalmist knows what's most needed if this people is going to be revived. The great need is for God's word, for his truth, for his voice to rest with weight upon the people once more, to be treasured once more, to be received with gladness once more. The commanding voice of the Lord must grasp the wholehearted attention of all the people again. His voice must be heard above all others and must hold sway in the hearts of his people again. It's not surprising, is it? Is it? That the thing that is most needed is for us to listen to his word, to receive his word. If we want to live the very word by which he spoke all of creation into existence, the very word that he uphold, by which he upholds the, the, the universe, the very word that Adam and Eve discounted in the Garden of Eden to their everlasting detriment, to our detriment. It's not surprising, is it? When Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? The word of God needs to rest with weight upon the people of God if our souls are going to be revived. It's got to be more than a suggestion. It's got to be more than just a simple book. It's got to be more than the church's constitution. It's got to be the very word of God that commands our soul because it's only the word of God that reveals his glory. And we need, through the word of God, for God to reveal his glory to our souls yet again, don't we? God's got to take center stage. Whatever he commands, we've got to be willing to do. Whatever he should say, we've got to hear and believe. Whatever God should instruct, we've got to receive. Whatever God would command us to surrender, we must gladly forsake. God needs, God must be, I mean, he's always the authority, we must recognize him as the authority. Tremble at his word yet again. Honor him with everything that's in us. Our heart's attention has to be on the voice of the Lord once more. And here's why. Because he, and he alone can speak shalom to his people. You want peace? You want wholeness? You want spiritual soundness and stability and strength? You will find it nowhere else than in the glad reception of God's holy word. It can't be found anywhere else. He alone can speak Life, he alone can revive the soul. He alone can revive his saints who are the object of his steadfast love. His salvation, his rescue, his deliverance, his life. Therefore, those who fear him and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? His spiritual deliverance in life, therefore, those who fear him, who reverence God, who honor him as God, who delight in him supremely, who don't just talk about God but know him and want to know him more. One thing was certain. They could not continue as they were. These people for whom the psalmist is interceding, himself included, they couldn't remain as they were. They couldn't return to their folly yet again, but instead they must fear God once more, delight in him supremely, reverence and love and adore him and look to him in humility and dependence to just humble themselves before God. And then God would revive them and then God would restore them. And that's exactly what we need. Beloved, this is what we need. And the psalmist gives us here this picturesque vision of what a revival actually looks like. What he says in verses 10 through 13, he said, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. 
Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a way. I don't have time to really go into all of this. And that's okay because sometimes pictures, if you overpreach them, lose their beauty. But I just want you to see this. Here's this description of what happens when God revives his people. He's describing here a, a picture of God and his people. This experience of restoration and revival. The joyous celebration, you see it, of two friends who have been long separated, now coming back together yet again. Two lovers, you might say, that have been long separated from one another and now, now they're back together. The steadfast love of God meets with faithfulness from his people. God is faithful to his people, and his people are faithful in return, right? The righteousness of God, instead of producing fear, now produces peace in their souls, right? True joy is restored. Faithfulness springs up amongst God's people. God pours out his blessing, and his people are fruitful yet again. Our steps are ordered by his grace, and we walk in the way of life. It's a new beginning, a fresh outpouring of the life of God and the soul of man and of his church. And it's what we desperately need. It's what we need more than anything else. J.I. Packer says, a revived church is full of the life, joy, and power of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna say that again. A revived church is full of the life, joy, and power of the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit's coming, fellowship with Christ is brought right to the center of our worship and our devotion. The glorified Christ is shown, known, loved, served and exalted. Consciences become tender, and a profound humbling takes place. The perverseness, ugliness, uncleanness, and guilt of sin are seen and felt with new vividness, and there is a profound exercise of heart in repentance. Love and generosity, unity and joy, assurance and boldness, a spirit of praise and prayer and a passion to reach out to win others are recurring marks of a people experiencing revival. Love, we need a revival and we need to pray for it. It's not just gonna happen, right? We need to pray for it. And there's much more that I could say this morning. There's much more that, that I wanna say, but I, I want us to have time to pray. And so I'm going to close with these words from Charles Spurgeon, who said at the outset of his sermon on this text, this is what he said, he's right on. He said, brethren, if you will pray this prayer, it'll be better than my preaching from it. And my only motive in preaching from it is that you may pray it. Beloved, this morning we need to pray for revival. And I'm not just saying this morning, I, we need to pray every day for the fresh outpouring of the life of God in the souls of his people. We need to pray and pray and pray until we have it. And if we pray until Christ returns, then so be it. But we need the life of God in his church and the life of God in his people.